turn in your copy of the Word of God to Hebrews chapter 10. As we continue our series, that is the overarching theme, the overarching message of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is better. And today we're going to look at our confident confession. And as we look at our confident confession, are there stories that are so impressed upon your mind, things that you've lived through, things that you saw, that, man, they have left an ever-potent impact and, and mark on your life. It's like, it's such an impact, it's like one of those uh, minting presses that takes a piece of metal and it stamps the coin, and it's forever shaped like that until something else puts in a little slot and, and says, hey, I went to Branson. Uh, one of those things. Uh, you know, it's stamped. Are there memories like that? they should be i mean unless we have lived in a cave or our heads in the sand and that is nothing to offend those who've lived in wooden caves and their heads in the sand i i would deeply regret to to offend you if that's you but most of us have those parts of our life maybe it's something in in history that we remember i i remember being in miss nanny's class in the first grade on that day when we were watching a, a elementary school teacher going to be launched into space, I remember surrounding this radioactive little TV in our, in our little classroom, and we're all glued. And then moments later, what happens? Kind of crazy for a first grader. Kind of messed up. But I remember it. There's other parts in history that you remember. There's some more recent. Now, some of our younger members here, they've never lived through those, those memories that me and you have. Those that were born after 2001, guess what? They don't remember 2001. Some of you have these visual impactful reminders in your life that, that have left an impression on you. The birth of your children. You remember what that's like, man. I remember sitting there and, and the wonder of it all. I mean, I remember the doctor saying, hey, sir, you're going to have to like quieten down. You're, you're too loud in the middle of the one, two, three. I was excited. And I was freaking the doctor out. But I remember that. And I remember that first moment, seeing that little infant, that seeing that that life that I knew had, had, had been there and, and God had been knitting together for the last nine months. Maybe plus a few weeks. But sitting there and, and their squinty little face and putting my finger in my little pinky in the middle of that grip. And man, I mean, I was a daddy the time the life began in the womb, but I'm a daddy. Man, that left a, an impact. I, I and I, and I can tell you now. I I know what it's like to have a thirteen going on fourteen year old, and, and I'm not supposed to embarrass her in the sermon, so I don't ever. I wonder what it was like in August of two thousand one. I, I moved to another city, and and I went to school, and and I, and they had this little concert event, and I walked in one day. And I'm looking like a, a just a doofus. A lot skinnier doofus, but a doofus. I still like a doofus. What? See this young lady, and man, she comes striking up a conversation, warm and, and kind, and she's kind of cute. 
She thinks I'm some lost baseball player. Asking about the season. And she cared enough to like start beginning a conversation to try to get me to Jesus. It was like, if I can get him to Jesus, maybe I can get him on a date. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but thankfully, she said yes many years later. I remember the day when she walked down the aisle, and I'm sitting there, and he thought I was a doofus the first day. Man, the grin swelled up. I remember those days. You, you, you know what it's like, right? There's those moments, and it's good for us to kind of call back and remember. And, and it's important that God has engraved those on our soul. And so today when we look at this chapter in Hebrews really quickly, because these are all things that we've already been looking at over the last several weeks that you've been here as we've looked at chapters 5 through 10, this overarching message of what is the confident confession of having such a high priest? It's such a large passage because it's saying, may we never forget who Jesus is. May we never forget what Jesus has done and what that means for us. So stand with me as we honor God in the reading of His Word today. Verses 1-25, through 25, the beginning part of chapter 10, the book of Hebrews, written in the New Testament. This is going to be on page 1066. If you're following along with our pew Bibles, it will also be on the, on the wall. And as always, if you do not have a readable copy of the Bible that you can understand, please take that one. We believe it's a faithful translation and it, and it is very readable. So, chapter 1, the word of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, preserving this for us, gives it to us today. Since the law was, has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, You did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in burnt, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, See, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. After he says above, You did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law, he then says, see, I have come to do your will. You see, he takes away the first to establish the second. By this, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. 
The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after He says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says, I will put My law on their hearts. I will write them on their minds and they will never again remember their sins. I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. That is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over our... Lost my place. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since He who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let us pray. Lord God, we've read Your Word. May You have Your way in this time, for You are mighty and able. And I pray that we, our hearts, would be tender and ready. In Jesus' name, amen. So we want to help people as we get into the Word to see what it said. Is, is it important? It's important for us to look and say, God, let Your text drive us. Let it guide us. Any study that we do, any preaching that we hear, may that be what we're looking for more than anything. That, that Your text drives us, not a personal agenda, agenda not a personal opinion, but your text. Let it show us what it says and then show us what it means. Let us understand this wasn't dropped out of heaven and, and it's just mysterious, but it was given in a time and place for a specific reason in a specific way. And that meaning never changes. Let us look for that. Then we need to see, then how does it apply? What does that mean that is ever faithful, ever strong, never changing? What does it mean in my crazy, chaotic life? How does it apply to where I am right now in my walk with you, Lord? Or my lack thereof? And lastly, will I trust what God is saying? Here, the author of Hebrews, as, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen these words, these, these ever-widening words that gives us the gravity. I mean, I, I, I'll be honest, getting into this, I knew we were going to talk a lot about the priesthood of Jesus. But the gravity and the weightiness of it I honestly had never fully taken in and comprehended myself. And so this has been good for my soul. But as he's writing to these believers who are in the midst of persecution, in the midst of uncertain times and overwhelming temptation to no longer speak and make much of Jesus. As he's speaking to them, and he's also speaking to those who were in the proximity of the household of faith, but had not yet placed their faith in Jesus, he is bringing this weighty subject. And here he, he's wrapping up this topic of what it means to have such a confession. Now, we don't use confession very often. And in and, and some of our churches uh, that may be a, a little more strongly reformed, they might use the London Baptist Confession as their statement of faith. We In, in the pews in front of you have your Baptist faith 
and message. We don't use the word confession in that because, well, sometimes when we think of confession, it automatically has Roman Catholic idea in it. And some people are very hesitant to use that word. But confession means I will confess and believe what I know to be true. So whenever you're giving your testimony in court, you're supposed to make a confession about what you know. You're supposed to out it and let it be out there. Um, And the same is true. What we confidently confess about Jesus is something that we know to be true, that we have come to believe and know to be certain in our life. The Bible makes it clear that in Jesus there is a confident confession. Not a wavering, not a weak one, but a confident one. Why do we have such confidence? Well, first of all, the Bible is bringing back this this imagery. Know, first and foremost, that Jesus is the sacrifice. The only sacrifice for the corruption of our soul. So that's, that's a big news moment for us. Sometimes we don't get the, the gravity of it, but as we've been looking at our need for a priest, we've kind of come to say, wow, there is a deep corruption to the soul. Who in this world could say? You know, the Apostle Paul even asked that question. I mean, if we thought about anybody that was not probably not have trouble with, you know, struggling or the war with the flesh or temptations, it would be someone like Paul, right? I mean, he wrote like all these letters of the New Testament. He traveled around the known world. He, he went through desperate times to, to make Jesus, make much of Jesus. The guy got beat up, robbed, shipwrecked. I mean, it was, he had a life, but he was, that was crazy. But devoted to Jesus, we would say, that's definitely him. But yet in his letter to the Romans, he says, the good I, I, I know I should do and the good I want to do, I, I don't do that. And the evil I know I should not do, and I don't want to do this, I do. Who can save a wretch like me? Now, he's writing those words after being saved. He realizes his constant need for a Savior because of his constant pining for sinfulness. His constant war with it. And we had the same ordeal. Our heart is corrupted. Our heart is deceitful. Who can understand it? Well, there is one. There is one. And He's a mighty one. And what He does for our corruption is He provides a sacrifice. And it's a sacrifice unlike any other. You see, the soul, even for the believers that came from this Hebrew faith, this faith that would live by the law and live by sacrifice, they understood they had to keep going and keep going and keep going and offering these these bloody burnt offerings and sacrifices year after year, time after time, sin after sin. They had to keep doing it. And as ritualistic as it and, and as, as, as very potent as it was to say this is the cruelty of and gruesomeness of sin, it still left the soul wanting and needing more. Something to do more for the corruption. So there was a pining in our lives for a better sacrifice that the old law could not provide. There was in Jesus, there is in Jesus, the provision of that better sacrifice. It's interesting about that. What the Bible says about itself, God, while God had provided this provisional basis 
for man to be atoned for, for man to be made right with God, for there to be a covering over our sin, it never fully dealt with it. No matter how many sacrifices, how many offerings could be offered. You want to look? You can go through 1 Samuel, you can go through the book of Psalms, you can go through Amos, you can go through Micah, you can go through Isaiah, you can go through Hosea, and all of these repeat this, this phrasing. God did not desire sacrifice. God did not desire offering. He did not delight in whole burnt offerings, in sin offerings. He was dissatisfied with just this provisional, temporary offering. It was not in God's full desire. What God desired was obedience and righteousness. But that was not in us. That capacity was not there. No matter how good we may consider ourselves. And I know what we can all think. We think, man, I'm pretty decent. I mean, I think I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. Or, uh, you know, we kind of go around with this. But, I mean, we can make the case real easy. What is someone we call, what do we call someone that tells lies? A liar. Okay. Have you ever told lies? Okay. I'll leave that there. What do we call someone that's stolen something? Okay, you ever taken something that didn't belong to you? What does that mean? What do we call someone that is uh, philandering? An adulterer. But Jesus says, Jesus says if we've ever looked at someone lustfully, we've committed adultery. What do we call someone that that kills somebody? And Jesus said, if you've ever had hate towards another person, we've done the same. What do we call someone that misuses the name of God? A blasphemer. But if we've ever used God's name or cared in a way that's inappropriate, the same could be said of us. So if any of those things qualify, we could even say if all of those things qualify, we were hated or looked inappropriately or, or said something inappropriate, we're lying, thieving, adultering, blaspheming, murderers. Righteousness is not in us. It's not. And yet God did not give up on His people. The people He made in His own image. What the beauty of the cross is, is that He provides something that He did not delight in, but knew was absolutely necessary for sin to be atoned for. But instead of continuing over and over and over against these little provisional ones, He gives the greatest provision once for all time. You see, that's the potency and the better sacrifice. That this one man, this one man, did this once and for all, and it means forever to everyone who believes. That you can look to the cross and be saved. What we see is, in our confident confession is not only saying, look, all of us are sinful and all of us fall short of the glory of God and Jesus is the sacrifice for that corruption. We also say Jesus is the sacrifice for completion. It's done everything. It's not only once and for all, but it is the removal of sin. According to verses 11 and 12, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after day which can never take away sin. But this man, offering one sacrifice of sins forever, 
It's the removal of sin. It's complete. It's complete. Our, our status of being justified, made righteous, being clean, the cause of Jesus is done once and for all. Once and for all. The condition of our soul. We've talked about it this way. What Jesus does when we come to Him is He makes us positionally righteous. Like we stand carrying this status that we are forever righteous. Positionally. And then this word sanctified is where our life, day after day as we're walking with Jesus, when we're not positionally righteous, we become practicing righteousness. That which God has done in us starts to express itself beyond us. It's the removal of sin. But also, it's not only that, it's the ruin of Satan. And I know in your notes it says verse 14, but this is verse 13. That God has done this so that every one of His enemies will be His footstool. In, in the monarchical days, uh, these, these empirical days where, where empires conquered one another, one of the ways that you really push down your enemy and, and really set your foe in their place is whenever you were sitting on your throne, you would make them come and grovel at your feet. And you would full on lazy boy just prop your feet on their back. They were your footstool. That was it. Total saying, I've conquered you, you grovel beneath my feet. The, one of the dirtiest places on my body. That's where you belong. And then they would not only do that as a monarch, but they would bring in every one of their commanders, every one of their generals, and they would put their, they say, put your foot on their head. Hold it down. Because that's what you've done. It would allow that place. And I know the imagery seems cruel, but this is what God is saying will ultimately happen to His ultimate enemy. That they will fall under the feet of His wrath. That one day, we may try to credit the devil with all power, but... He's below the feet of Jesus. As if He was nothing. As if He wasn't even worth their time. This is the conquering King we speak of. That one day, even the enemy himself will be completely done away with. And not only is this completion, it's for the rest of eternity. It's for the rest brought to us that that we are forever sustained. I want you to, if you have, if you're one of these people that highlight in your Bible, that's fine, that's great. But man, if there's somewhere you want to really focus in, verse 14 of chapter 10. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Now, there's so much in that one little verse, but I want you to know completion. If there's any word you want to leave with it, it's completion. The one offering of Jesus. The one sacrifice of Jesus, not yours. The one attentiveness of Jesus, not yours. He has sanctified forever. It is complete in Him alone. Now, what is the gratitude that we have for someone who would love us that deeply? That would love us that completely. We like to use the cute little phrase from Jerry Maguire. You complete me. It's a silly little hokey moment in a movie and you may say, don't you dare bring that movie down. 
It's a little silly and romantical and maybe even sweet and tenderhearted. But in Jesus, it's seriously done. His love, only His love, only His sacrifice brings completion. And lastly, Jesus is the sacrifice for certainty. What does all this mean? Let's bring it on home. The Bible says, let us draw near. God is in the desire of drawing people near to Him. But there has to be particulars about how that takes place. For He is holy and without Him we are not. So we must answer and come to Him on His terms. Any other way says we question who He is as God. We question His authority as God. But by His way, we are able to draw near not by our own sweat and toil, but by His blood. Not by any other priest that may change with the calendar or the coming of age or or the, the changing of the guard, but by the one holy priest forever that stands and sits at the right hand of the throne forever. Not by fake motives or questionable certainty, but with a true heart and full assurance. A heart full of love and full assurance. And lastly, with clean hands. Clean hands that were not clean by our good deeds, but by Him making us holy and us growing in that holiness. We are to draw near in that particular way knowing that we have Access. We have access to God. Not because we're all that, but because He is. We're not only to draw near, but we're to hold fast. Hold fast to Him. You may say, well, Pastor, how do I do that? I mean, Jesus is in heaven. How do I draw near to Jesus and then hold Him fast? Here's how you hold Him fast. Here's how you show your love to Him. Here's how you follow Him. Here's how you grow with Him. You do what He has told us to do because you believe that what He says is worth following. That's what it means to hold fast. It's not some secret miracle formula. It's not some gigantic quest. It is, I believe you are good. And I believe you are God. What you said is good, and it comes from words of God, so let me follow them, because they are good. I want to be glad as I draw near to you. We hold fast to what? First of all, to God's faithfulness. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since He who promised is faithful, not because we are faithful, Because if we're honest, we don't do a good job sometimes carrying such a great gift from Jesus. You ever got a great gift and you end up breaking it and you're like, oh man, I don't ever want to ask for that again. Not because I didn't want it, but because I felt too embarrassed to go to him or go to the person that gave it. But here's the beauty of it. We get to hold fast not because we are faithful, but because he is. Since He who promised is faithful. Secondly, we we hold on to His faithfulness and say, God, I, I recognize You are the promise giver and it's not dependent on me. But may I never live a life that says 
those promises don't matter. May I never make them seem small. May I never communicate with my life that the God I follow, eh, it's kind of a toss-up. Maybe I'll go worship Him today. Maybe I'll honor Him today. Maybe I'll show some love to Him today. But He's worth it. Every day to bring Him glory. Let us hold fast to Christian fellowship. Verses 24 and 25. It says, let us watch out for one another. Now this watch out for one another is not, okay, I'm going to be the self-appointed bulldog watching out for everybody that stumbles and falls. That's not what it is. I watch out like I watch my kids. Hey, what are you doing? I'm concerned about you. I want to help you. I love you. That's the watching out that we're to do for one another. Here's the problem with that. It's hard to watch out for people you're never around. We've got to be there for one another if we want to watch out for one another. That's just the long and short of it. Not only on Sundays, but throughout the week. That's what community looks like. We've got to be near one another if we're going to watch out for one another. And not only watch out for one another, but provoke love. And good works. Now, I can provoke a lot of things. I can provoke people. I can get on their nerves. I can do that. I know that. I can even provoke people to a job. No. I really feel like you're the person God wants for this task. I can do that. But here's the command. To provoke one another to love. To provoke one another to love and to good works. Is what you do for someone else, is it provoking love? Is that the response? It's to be there. And lastly, not neglecting to gather together as some are in their habit of doing, but encouraging each other daily. So the writer of Hebrews knew and we recognized that, that this doesn't just happen by happenstance and haphazardness. Like, eh, if I show up every now and then, maybe this will just rub off. No, it, it, it's intentional. And putting that beyond just a power word in today's lingo, it's action. Awareness. It's being there. I heard it attributed to Charles Spurgeon. I don't know if he actually said it. I, I, I've got to do some more research. But once, as this story goes, a man asked Charles Spurgeon... He says, is it true that you have to go to church to get to heaven? And Charles Spurgeon said, no son, it's not. You do not have to go to church to get to heaven. But a faith that will not place you with the church probably won't get you there. Because you don't want to be with God's people anyway. Why would you want to spend eternity with Him? I was like, man, he roasted that guy. But truth sometimes burns. We have to provoke not only 
holding fast to God's faithfulness, saying that we do this all because of who He is. But we also do this because He's the one that adopted each and every one of us. We're in the same family. And lastly, we hold fast to Christ's fulfillment. And I will close here. Because we do this because we recognize one day Jesus is returning. What are we going to be about on that day? And if that's the case of what we want to be about that day, that He's coming back, that should be our business every day until then. Look at, I mean, it's kind of a way of figuring it out. Sometimes we look at the end goal and say, well, this is where I want to get by this time frame, by this place. Maybe you've done this conversation in your life. I want to be like this place in my marriage. I want to have a house by this age. I want to have a kid by this age. I want to be out of debt by this age. And I'm there. And, and, and every decision I've got to make until that day has got to be in view of that day. The Bible says Jesus is going to return. And we all have an idea where I want to be on that day. But there's a lifespan should He tarry between here and there and we should be making our business about getting to that place as we hold fast. This is not about good works. This is about a confession. A confident confession. Say, God, Lord Jesus, what You did for me on behalf of the corruptness of my soul, there was no good in me. But You did this for my corruption. And you did it in such a way that I don't have to add anything else to it. When I have you, I have all I need for completeness. So Lord, help me. Help me live with such certainty that what I communicate is not arrogance, it's not conceit, and it's certainly not deceit. But it's a confident confession that, Lord, you are the one who made these promises and you're worth living for. You're worth coming into community with other people that know that. And you're worth living in such a way that we are glad that you're coming back one day. Not because we want to sit on our blessed assurances until that day, but because we're going to be busy with them. That's a line from one of my loving deacons. and Maybe the preacher shouldn't say it, but yeah. I like it. Let's pray. Lord God, today we're coming to a point of, of being dismissed and deployed out to the far corners of the world. and That's awesome that we get to serve you this week. I pray we do it well. I pray you help me do it well. I pray that this visual of these ones, you will help us to do living for you in a way that is so well and so spoken and verbal that these ones come to a closer place with you because we're sharing you who cares for I pray that you will help us find other ways to draw people towards you. That you would use us as you've wired us to be used. But God, I also recognize that in this moment, there may be some that came in this room that, that they have heard of you, they know of you, but they don't have true faith in you. And today may be the day that they need to have that conversion a work of you in their life and their soul that draws them to you. I pray that you would help them do that. 
There may be other decisions that need to be made, next steps. And, and I would venture to say, I know there are because I need to make further steps with you following you. So God lead us. And should there be anything that we need counsel with and, and need a brother or sister through this day, help us do that in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.